invite you now to stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10 is our passage this morning. Acts 3, 1 through 10. Hear now the living and abiding word of the Lord. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. All of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, uh, you do wondrous things. Uh, You are the God who does things far above our understanding, what we can anticipate, what we can explain. And uh, we are thankful for the opportunity to uh, read of your great works through Jesus Christ here in the book of Acts. And as we read of the power of Jesus' name, I pray that that same powerful name would be proclaimed faithfully, it would be received in the hearts of all who hear today, and we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, if we were to summarize what the Bible is about, uh, it's a good question if somebody asks you, what is the Bible about? There's different ways of describing that, but here is one of my attempts at summarizing the true story of the Bible, and that is, it is a story of how God breaks into our fallen broken, sin-cursed world, and brings healing and deliverance and salvation. And what we have in our passage before us today is a picture of God doing just that. He, he breaks into our world. He comes in the context of somebody's brokenness and need, and he brings healing and restoration and deliverance. There was once an Anglican pastor in Africa, he was there in Africa, and he heard a conversation between a a mother and her child. And the mother was asked by the child, Mom, what is God doing all day long? It's a good question to ask. Have you thought about that, children? What is God doing all day long? You know what mom and dad are doing, you know what you yourself are doing, but what is God doing all day long? The mother wisely answered, she said, God spends his whole day mending broken things. That's a profound answer in many ways. Of course, we could say he does a variety of things. God does many things. But to summarize God's workings in the world in redemption as this, God spends his entire day mending broken things. Well, that's true because the gospel of Jesus Christ, as it works its way out into the world, is mending our broken world. It's bringing healing and life to those who previously did not have it. That's what God has been doing ever since the fall, reaching into our broken world, mending that which we have broken, that which sin has broken. So as we come to Acts chapter 3 today, uh, we are uh, exploring the narrative of what happened in the church in Jerusalem. That's what Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 8 is especially focused upon is the church in Jerusalem and what Jesus Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit, was doing in the church there in Jerusalem and building the church. And what we come to today is one of the miracles that Acts records. There's many miracles in the book of Acts. This is one of the first and most significant of those miracles. 
We already read in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, that the apostles were doing miracles. We didn't dig into that last week, but in Acts 2, 43, it says, Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So there was a variety of miracles taking place, but what happens in this chapter is Luke, he uh, focuses in on the healing of this man that was paralyzed for over 40 years. We learn he was paralyzed for over 40 years from Acts chapter 4. Everybody knew that he was a man who had been born this way. And it was a miracle that testified to what God was doing in history. It showed the people of Jerusalem what Jesus Christ had come to do. He had come to preach glad tidings to the poor, to bind up the wounds of the brokenhearted, to bring healing to those sick with sin, to save the lost, and also, of course, physically to heal. We see that here in the miracle. And this is a a picture for us, a, a true story of how God works wonders, how he does things beyond our understanding in the case of this miracle. And I hope that as we're here in Acts 3, that our appreciation for our wonder-working God will be renewed as we look at this account. So let us have the details before us. Let us learn about what happened that day, sometime after the day of Pentecost here, as Peter and John entered into the temple. So let's look here at verses 1 through 2 once again, and we begin with the description of this man that was lame from birth. It says, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. One of the things we learned last week is that they were spending time daily in the temple. The church in Jerusalem had their gatherings for worship, but they also would go into the temple. Uh, they would go into the temple, it seems, to join in the, uh, the times of prayer that were taking place. We also know that they entered the temple to preach Jesus Christ, because we find them in the temple many times preaching the name of Jesus Christ. So it was an opportunity for witness. And in this case, they go up at the hour of prayer, which says it's the ninth hour, equivalent to our 3 p.m. This is when they would gather for a time of prayer before the evening sacrifice. And it was in God's providence at just that point in time that you have this intersection between this man laid at the gate beautiful and Peter and John entering in. Uh, It's perfect timing for something amazing to take place. God had ordained that this meeting would happen and that Peter and John uh, would, uh, would, in the name of Christ, bring about this miracle. And so let's think about this man for a moment. He, He was laid daily at the gate of the temple. You've got to put yourself in this man's shoes to the best of your ability. Of course, he didn't have shoes, so that's, that's part of the problem. You've got to put yourself in his mindset of what it would be like to live like this man. Here he is, a cripple, for over 40 years. He has never walked a day in his life. And not being able to walk, it's very difficult to do any physical uh, labor, especially in this kind of agricultural context. There's not a lot of desk jobs in Jerusalem, not a lot of remote teleconferencing kind of opportunities for him. And so here he is, laid daily at the gate. And so he relied upon the charity of others for his daily provision to be able to eat. And so he would ask for handouts from those that came in. He was seeking charity from uh, those that entered in to worship the Lord at the temple. He was laid at the gate beautiful. Uh, We don't exactly know uh, which gate this was. The Romans having destroyed the temple makes it rather difficult to construct all the, reconstruct all the details. Uh, But Josephus tells us about this very amazing gate. It was made uh, of Corinthian brass, which was this very uh, ornate, beautifully refined uh, metal, and it was used to ornately decorate this particular gate. That very well may have been the gate beautiful. It was, they called it beautiful because it was beautiful. And it, it makes sense to us that this man would be placed at the gate of the temple. It's, it's a perfect place to seek charity. 
One reason for that is that there's lots of people going into the temple. It's like a busy intersection. There's people constantly going in and out of the temple all day long to offer worship to the Lord. Uh, It's sort of like a a beggar in our modern day placing himself on a street corner where there's lots of cars going every different direction. Beggars don't find these intersections where there's nothing going on for hours at a time. They want to be where the action is. They want to be where it's busy. And so his friends put him there at the temple gate. Another reason it would be relevant for him to be there is people are going in to worship God. And if you're going in to worship God and you're expressing your devotion to the Lord, what better way to actually show your heart of love for the Lord than to give to the poor, which is what the Old Testament often exhorted, is to care for those who are poor and in need. And in fact, it would be hypocritical to offer your sacrifices but not care for those that were in need right before you, especially one who's physically disabled. He can't work. He's not able-bodied. And so as we try to think about what it's like to be this man, you're laid at the gate, you're stuck there in the very same place, probably saw a lot of the same people come in, and those same people would say, I've given to you, I gave to you last week, I'm not giving to you anything this time. And, and this is not a man that expects healing. His life is defined by asking for help, but not expecting healing. He expected money, but not healing. For him to imagine that he would walk one day and even leap would be a distant dream. Only something to imagine, only something to pray for perhaps. Imagine he perhaps did pray for healing, but he probably didn't expect it. But on this day... There was going to be something significant that was going to happen. But for 40 years, he had been afflicted. And and what I would draw from this, uh, in terms of our application for us, is that we learn something here about affliction. God had so purposed it that this man, for over 40 years, would suffer. That was God's will for his life. This man, for over 40 years, would not walk. He would not work. He would beg. He might feel purposeless at times. He might feel, why do I even exist? But God had ordained to show forth his glory in this man's life on this day. And it reminds us that sometimes, or I should say it really all the time, but in different ways we don't know how, God ordains to show forth his glory through our afflictions. And kids, this is the first point in your notes Number one, God often glorifies himself through our trials by showing himself mighty to deliver us from them. How often had this man brought his case to God? How often had he asked and said, why, Lord, did you make me a cripple? Why should it be that I'm unable to walk? I'm unable to work. What do you have for me in this life? Wouldn't it be better if I had never lived rather than being a burden to my family and my community? Uh, I would imagine if I was in his position, I would think the very same things. Why am I even here? What does my life mean? And and in that regard, even if we haven't gone through what this man did, I, I think each of us have asked the same question about something in our lives, some affliction, some thorn in the flesh, some difficulty we think, Why is this here? It would seem to me, Lord, that it would be much better if it was not here. I have a very good idea, Lord, about how my life could go if this was not here. But we're missing, when we think those things, we're missing that God has his secret purposes. God is going to do glorious things through these afflictions in ways that we cannot yet see or anticipate. It reminds us of the blind man in John chapter 9. You remember the disciples, they they wanted to quickly, briefly understand why this man was blind. They had a very simplistic perspective. They said, there's only two reasons such a thing can happen, right, Jesus? Either he sinned or his parents sinned. Please tell us which of the two, A or B. Uh, And Jesus says, neither. It is for the purpose of the works of God being revealed in him that this has taken place. 
decades of suffering for this lame man, decades of suffering for the, the man born blind, all for the purpose of God's work being shown? Yes, that's the answer of this passage. And so if you're in the midst of a particular affliction, it may not be evident to you what God's purposes are in it. Maybe some purposes are evident, maybe others are not. But I want, to, I want to, you to see from our passage that God has his ways. God has his wise ways of showing forth his glory and his power in our afflictions. As it happened on this day for this man. What an exciting day it was for him to see the work of God in him. So now we see Peter and John and their interaction with the man. In verses 3 through 5 we read, who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Now, when you have people begging for money, and you, if you want to avoid giving them something, you don't look at them. You don't make eye contact. That, that makes it more difficult. But in this case, Peter and John say, Look at us. Give your attention to us. Because they had something to give to this man. Now as the man turned his eye to Peter and John, what did he expect to receive? Not healing. He didn't ask for healing. He had been asking for alms, whatever words he would use. Maybe he was asking for a denarius or saying alms for the poor or something like that. He's, he's asking for charity, but not healing. He expected what he had always received. People had a few spare coins, perhaps even a denarius, a whole day's worth of work could be given to him or more, or perhaps less. Uh, Something might be thrown his way. That's all he expected to receive this day. But what he did not expect is that Peter and John, through the name of Jesus Christ, would heal him completely of his malady that he had had his entire life. Now what's unique about this miracle I want us to think about is that he doesn't ask for it healing. And if you compare this with the majority of healings in the Gospels, this is something that sets it apart. If you remember the majority of healings in the Gospels, most of the time people came to Jesus and they would ask for something. Sometimes Jesus would even make them ask, like Bartimaeus. He says, what do you want me to do for you? The centurion asked Jesus to heal his servant. Uh, Jairus, he asked Jesus to heal his daughter. Bartimaeus asked Jesus to receive his sight. The Syrophoenician woman asked Jesus to heal her daughter. And the list goes on of people asking for healing. It's not not every case, but most of the cases. And what I think is important for us to see here about this example is that this healing was a sovereign act of God. It was not requested. It was not sought It was the will of God to bring about this healing even when this man did not expect it or even ask for it here. Now, possibly he had asked for it in previous years. So maybe this was the answer to prayer it just took years later. But he did not expect it. And what this does for us is it reminds us that God, as I said earlier, breaks into our world. He sovereignly works. He brings life. He brings healing. He brings deliverance according to his sovereign will. And so Peter and John, they they say, look, we don't have what you're asking for, but we have something much better. Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. It was a a simple but miraculous event. Simple in the sense that it didn't take much process or any sort of uh, thing, operation to work through, but it was miraculous. It was a work of God. It was beyond any natural means to bring about. He he immediately received strength. He he started walking. He... And not only walking, but leaping. Now remember that this man had never walked a day in his life. This wasn't the case of someone with a, like a years-long paralysis who had previously walked and he just needed to get his abilities back and then he could walk. He had never walked in his life. Notice there was no uh, six to eight weeks of physical therapy. 
where the man learned to balance and he was kind of shaky and they had to kind of walk him on the little poles and he'd walk down those and they'd say, okay, come back next week. We'll keep working on this. He just walked and leaped immediately. Now you can compare this to you know, a rehabilitation center. I remember uh, visiting one of our church members down at the Spalding Rehabilitation Center in Aurora and I, and I was wa- watching people in the, this rehab process doing physical therapy and and it's very uh, slow process for many people, and sometimes like a, a successful day is defined as, hey, you got out of the wheelchair, and you took two steps, and we say that's a success. And, and in the context of rehabilitation, that very well may be a success, it very well may be progress. But I contrast that to say, do you see how different this is? There's no uh, natural explanation for this. And everybody in the temple knew that this was not something that had been planted. This wasn't some fake miracle by uh, some televangelist who planted some people and said, okay, tell them that you had uh, cancer for three years and then you were healed when I touched you. It's none, none of that. This, is, this was known. And the reason it was known is that people knew this man. Acts chapter 4, verses 21 through 22, it it says that they knew this. It says, when they had further threatened them, the apostles, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So everybody knew it. There was no other explanation for this except the work of God. This was not a plant by the Christians. It was not a ploy. It was the power of God of the name of Christ. So I want to focus in on what Peter says when he, he commands him to rise up and walk. And he, he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And this is really interesting to think about why Peter puts it that way. Notably, Peter uses this reference to Jesus coming from Nazareth. It's so interesting to me that he he does this because it's true when he says Jesus Christ, he's referencing Jesus as Messiah. That's what Christ means, as the the anointed one. So that's a very weighty title. It's a very big, dignified, biblically rich title to describe Jesus. He is the one that fulfills all the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. So that's very weighty. But then he says, of Nazareth. Which, of all places and of all associations that anybody would think healing would come from, miraculously, it's not Nazareth. This is his very human, very ordinary title and association. He is, he is the carpenter, the son of Joseph, from the little podunk town of Nazareth. That's amazing uh, to think about this man doing miracles, who's not even in person there. He's ascended to the right hand of God. So yes, Jesus was the carpenter from Nazareth, but he is and he was and he is far more than the carpenter from Nazareth. He is the eternal son of God. He is the anointed Messiah of God. He is the savior of the world. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is the final prophet. He is the final priest to bring sacrifice to the father on behalf of his people. And he is the king who reigns over all. And what we learn from this as Peter commands in the name of Christ is that the name of Jesus Christ is a most powerful name. Jesus is the one who can do anything. He can heal anybody. He can raise anybody from the dead. He can bring spiritual life to dead sinners. He can transform sinners into saints. He can heal those physical maladies that have existed for years by the power of his name. This is what Jesus can do. Kids, this is the second point in your notes. Number two, Jesus can fix anything. Jesus can fix anything. And so when Peter and John did this, they were making very clear that this is not us doing it. This is not Peter and John's power. This is not in the name of Simon Peter, rise up and walk. This is in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And so once this healing takes place, uh, Peter and John immediately use it as an opportunity to preach Jesus. They say, hey guys, this is not about us. Let me tell you about Jesus. 
Acts 3, verse 12. It's almost the one, it's actually the first thing Peter says. When Peter saw it, he responded to the people. He says, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us? As though by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk. He says, do not assume that. If you've assumed that, you've completely missed the point. Acts 3.16, he says, speaking of the name of Christ, Peter says, in his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And so from this, brothers and sisters, we need to reflect upon the power of the name of Jesus Christ. That all that we do as as Christians is done in the name of Christ. That's actually what Colossians 3 says, that whatever you do, do all in, in the name of Jesus Christ. And the reason is because we represent him. We ourselves are not powerful. And yes, the apostles had a unique role. Yes, they they. Their office was testified by with signs and wonders that was unique to them. Uh, But all of us, as we minister in the name of Christ, we represent the power that Jesus Christ has. We, We share a powerful gospel with the world. And even though the apostles are no longer on the scene and they've passed on their teaching and their shepherding office to the pastors of the church... The power of Christ is very much with us today. The apostles themselves, like I said, were ultimately, uh, they're just foundation stones for the church. But Jesus has said that I will be with you until the end of the age. He is with us. The power of Christ is with us. The power of the Holy Spirit is with us as we do ministry in his name. And so this means for us, brothers and sisters, that we, we have a powerful gospel to deliver to the world. We present to the world a God who has revealed himself as a powerful, wonder-working God. And a Christianity without power is not a true Christianity. Because when the Lord Jesus Christ comes to save and to heal and to deliver, he actually affects what he intends to bring about. If Jesus intends to save somebody, he saves them. He doesn't just try, and then he's resisted, and then he fails. No, Jesus saves who he will save. And that's very different from us in and of ourselves because we make plans, uh, we have desires to do certain things, but we so often lack the power to fulfill those desires or plans. God often has other things for us. But it's not so with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. What God the Son and God the Holy Spirit intend to do, they will surely accomplish and that, that power is manifested in many different ways. Of course, one of the ways in this passage is through miraculous healing. And we're going to talk about miracles in a moment in terms of how we think about that in the modern day. Uh, we can expect at times that God will show his power through miraculous healings. Another important way, a very fu- fundamental way, in fact, that Christ's power is manifested is through the gospel taking effect Saving sinners, raising spiritually dead sinners to life, and then transforming them into people that they once were not. And one of the reasons that we we see that is in 2 Timothy chapter 3. You'll remember that Paul is warning about false teachers, and he says that you need to be on guard against ungodly people that are false teachers because they will have a form of godliness but deny its power. And that tells us then, if we were to flip that statement, that true godliness has power. That's the implication of that statement, that true godliness does come with power. The power of Jesus Christ to transform. Because when Jesus saves a person, when he saves a family, when he's saving his people, he brings about an internal heart transformation that then evidences itself externally. The Holy Spirit changes us. The Holy Spirit transforms people into a new humanity, a new kind of people created for good works. And it's important, brothers and sisters, that we seek this kind of power in the ministry that we do. 
we may at times see a, a lifelessness or a powerlessness in the ministry that we do when we don't see the gospel taking effect. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Uh, there's a variety of, of barriers at times that need to be addressed. But at the end of the day, it's certainly a matter of God's sovereign will, which we should pray for that we would see. But far more important than having uh, wealth, uh, having uh, even giftings and talents, is that we have the power of Christ behind all that we do in ministry. There was a famous story that was told about the Middle Ages, and it's an interaction between Pope Innocent II and Thomas Aquinas. And uh, at times we've discussed our problems with Thomas Aquinas, uh, so this is not an, a wholesale endorsement of Aquinas, but if this uh, conversation really happened, it well illustrates an important point for us. At the height of the Middle Ages, the church was very wealthy at times, uh, had so much of the world's uh, money, uh, Europe's money coming into it, uh, that it was a very, very powerful institution from the standpoint of having money. And the account goes something like this. Thomas Aquinas was once called on uh, Pope Innocent II, which, remember, that uh, Pope Innocent II would be the alleged successor of the Apostle Peter. So we might think there might be some continuity between the original Peter and Pope Innocent II, but as you know, there was often not much continuity between them at all. Thomas Aquinas entered into the Pope's presence, and he found the Pope counting out large sums of money. And the Pope said, You see, Thomas, the church can no longer say, Silver and gold have I none. The church was wealthy. You can't say what Peter once said, Silver and gold have I none. Thomas replied, True, Holy Father, but neither can the church now say, Rise up and walk. <laughs> it's, it well illustrates the point, doesn't it? Whether or not the conversation happened, it may be somebody made it up, I don't know. But it well illustrates for us the issue at hand. Ultimately, we don't need silver and gold because the church in Jerusalem didn't grow based upon silver and gold, did it? How did the church in Jerusalem expand by 3,000 and by 5,000? What was the power of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit? And yes, God gives us resources. He gives us financial resources to do things. That's a blessing. We, of course, are, are a our blessed church in terms of being a relatively wealthy church. But if we do not have the power of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit attending the work that we do, we will fail. We need the power of Jesus' name to build the church. Unless the Lord builds this church, we labor in vain, but seek to build it. This is the power of Christ at work here in Acts, and it should make us long for and pray for the manifestation of that power. So now as we continue, and we're, we're going to look here at the miracle and the result of the miracle, but I want to take a, a few moments to discuss miracles in general, because this is the first uh, big expanded upon miracle in Acts, and so I thought it might be a good opportunity just to give you a few points about how we think about miracles in Scripture, particularly miracles in Acts. And when we think about miracles... Uh, it can be a, a bit hard to get exactly a definition of what we mean by a miracle. Uh, and on one hand, we sometimes say a miracle is anything that God does beyond the natural order, beyond the natural laws that he has set up in nature. And I think that's, that's a fine definition, but sometimes it's hard for us to trace where God's ordinary ways of providence and a miracle meet. It's sometimes hard to figure out where that line is. Take, for example, somebody that is healed that the doctors said would not be healed. And we prayed for healing, we laid hands on them, they had medical care, and then they come through that and they're healed. And we say, well, was it a miracle? Or was it the medicine? Well, we, we may not be able to trace out where uh, the medicine's uses and where, uh, where our prayer intersected. And it's okay if we can't do that. At the end of the day, we must say, thank you, Lord, you did it, Lord. Thank you for healing our brother or sister. Whether or not it was a miracle, I don't care if people use that word. In fact, uh, if it helps them to glorify God, then praise be to God. We don't, we don't know exactly uh, for sure. But one, one thing I would direct you to is what our confession of faith says about providence. And it says this, 
God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, like medicine, for example. Yet God is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. And that's a great statement to think about because it tells us that God can do anything is in essence what that statement means. He can use things like medicine, he can use things like doctors, uh, and he can even use prayer, which is actually a means. But God can work apart from all of that. He can do anything he wants, anytime he wants, is in essence what this is saying. And we know that in the case of this man, this was a working above ordinary means. There was no physical therapy, there was no medicine, uh, there was simply the command for him to walk, and God made it happen by the word of his power. It's a miracle, very clearly. So how should we think about miracles? What are the purposes of miracles? Well, I'm going to hit these briefly so we can get to the final point. But first of all, miracles are signs and wonders designed to point to the truth of the gospel. And I say that because miracles are not an end in and of themselves. They're not just given simply to be. They're to point us to God and his redemption and his gospel purposes in the world. Uh, we, we see this in Hebrews chapter 2. The author, he says that, we, we heard the word of the gospel, and then the word of the gospel was accompanied with signs and wonders and miracles, which means that God intended the signs and wonders and miracles to point to the gospel. The gospel was more fundamental than the sign itself. The signs, signs by definition, they point to something, right? They point to something else, and they point to the gospel. Secondly, miracles serve to authenticate the apostles as true messengers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and to be uh, perfectly clear about the data, there are people in Acts that do miracles that are not apostles. So it's not limited to the apostles, but it's definitely associated with them. 2 Corinthians 12.12, 12, Paul says, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So here he tells us that the apostles had signs attending them. This was a visible authentication of their ministry, that these men were authorized to speak on behalf of Christ and to do works on behalf of Christ. Thirdly, miracles of physical healing in particular were meant to point beyond the physical healing to the holistic spiritual and physical restoration found in Christ's redemption. Another way of simply saying that is when Jesus healed people in the Gospels, they eventually died. It wasn't resurrection for them, even Lazarus' resurrection, it seems. He eventually died. So they were awaiting the final resurrection, as we do as well. And they needed the redemption of their sins. The physical healing didn't equal, necessarily, a redemption from sin. And one of the reasons that we know this is the case is, you remember the paralytic, the story of the paralytic being layered, laid down before Jesus, and obviously they want him to heal their friend, but what is the first thing Jesus said? Son, your sins are forgiven you. Everybody wonders, why does Jesus do that? Well, clearly, this man needed his sins forgiven more even than he needed his healing of his body, though Jesus was gracious to give both of those things. Another reason I would say this is that in Acts chapter 3, you don't find the apostles going around preaching physical healing as much as you see them preaching Christ and his redemption from sin. It's, it's noteworthy that in Acts 3, they don't go into the temple and they say, we are here to announce that we have come to physically heal everybody here. What they preach about is Jesus, his redemption, and the need for faith and repentance in him. That's their focus, primarily. In Acts 3.26, it says, this is Peter speaking to the Jewish leaders especially, To you first, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to bless you in turning every one of you from your iniquities. That was the focus of the message. Fourthly, miracles do not have the power in and of themselves to produce faith in those who witnessed them. There's many examples of this in the scriptures, but uh, one of the obvious ones is the resurrection of Lazarus. You remember Lazarus had been raised from the dead uh, after being in the tomb for many days. Everybody knew he was dead, and everybody in Jerusalem was hearing that he was alive, and they were seeing him. And even the Jewish leaders who knew this had happened, in John chapter 12, they make a plan to kill Lazarus. It's amazing to me. 
why wouldn't they believe? They saw the miracle, they heard about it, there was the evidence right before them. And in John 12, it says, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but also that they might see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So rather than believing Jesus, they make murder plans. Uh, You see then that miracles in and of themselves do not make somebody believe. They are at times a value. They are used. They were used by God and are used by God to testify to his existence and to his saving work. Uh, Sometimes they do have an impact in a, a good way in that regard, but not everybody that sees a miracle will believe. The atheist challenge that says, if God would have a lightning bolt strike right next to me, then I'd believe is is ridiculous on so many levels, but I don't think it would make them believe in their rebellion against the obvious knowledge of God that he's given in his word. Now, next question, should we expect miracles today? Well, my answer to that is yes, we can expect that God will do things above and outside his ordinary providence according to his sovereign will. We can pray for the miraculous, And there are examples in church history where, especially when the gospel went into a new region, there was often a greater manifestation of miracles that attended that first delivery of the gospel in the world. And we can read these accounts and we can think, well, is all this true? Is there maybe some things being embellished? It's possible. There's no way to verify it, uh, ultimately. But it's important for us to have a receptive heart toward the mighty works of God in the world Uh, There may be some miracles that we rule out on biblical grounds and say this is contrary to Scripture. And as I speak about miracles here, I'm not talking about word revelation. I'm not talking about the revelation of Scripture or prophecy, which I think we have good reasons to believe has ceased with the apostolic age, which I will speak about hopefully in future times and acts. But here I'm speaking about healings, uh, things that are beyond our, our physical explanation. And so we may at times hear about or see things that fall within the realm of the miraculous. You can read testimonies, especially from the, adva- uh, the emerging uh, world where the gospel is going in the 1040 window of amazing things taking place. Uh, things that are, uh, can only simply be described as miraculous. And I'm not there to verify them. I can receive these things as, as good news, as the work of God. Whether or not there's some embellishment, we'll leave that to the Lord. Uh, But we are to receive uh, when God does great things. We also need to be aware that where unbelief is prevalent, we may not see much of the miraculous. Uh, Remember, Jesus did not do many mighty works in his hometown because of the hardness of their hearts and because of unbelief. And when it comes to our, our life of prayer, it's particularly important that we have a sense of God's presence and his reality and his, his open ear to our prayers. Whether or not our answer to prayer is technically a miracle is not the most important thing to me. It's, what's important is that we recognize that God did it. When that provision for a new job comes that you've prayed for or you, you find that lost item that you thought, I never would have found that. Uh, is it God's ordinary providence? Is it a miracle? It doesn't really matter to me as long as we say, this is the work of God. Thank you, Lord, for answering my prayers. And so that, that is a bit to consider here on miracles, and perhaps in future opportunities and acts, we can, we can dig deeper into some of these questions. But let us go on here to the result of the miracle in verses 8 through 10 and look at what this man did. Verse 8, so he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, if you had never walked a day in your life and you were now walking, what would you do? How would you express yourself Uh, in this amazing moment. There are videos uh, you can find uh, on the internet of people that uh, perhaps were born with uh, lifelong maladies of not being able to see, and then with certain medical advances, there's been a a process whereby their their sight was recovered, and and they they take the bandages off, and these people are overwhelmed with the sense of sight. They just have no way to even uh, speak of it. Sometimes they just start crying, 
because of the amazing experience of sight. That's probably something of what it will be like when we are with the Lord and the new heavens and new earth. We'll just won't be able to express ourselves. But that's what this man did. He, he expressed himself through leaping, through jumping up. Like he really wanted to test out these new abilities. So he, he was springing a bit. He was jumping with some, some elevation here. And this was a very appropriate response to the great works of God. In fact, it was a direct fulfillment of prophecy. As we read earlier when Brother Chad read Isaiah 35, what did it say was going to happen? The lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Now, if any of the Jewish leaders remembered their Isaiah 35 when they were seeing this, they should have thought this. They should have thought, the Messiah has come. Because that's what Isaiah 35 was about, was the fulfillment of God's salvation and God doing great things and bringing in this age of of salvation and deliverance for the people of God. And they should have thought, this is happening right before our eyes. This picture of the, the man walking and leaping and praising God, it's such a good picture of what redemption looks like for every single one of us. It doesn't have to be a physical healing for us, so that may be one of the things that God does in your life and you praise him for it. But when God heals us of our spiritual paralysis, or go beyond that, our spiritual deadness, this is what happens in our lives. We walk, we leap, we praise God. Whether we do it physically, whether we express it verbally, This is what we do. It's such a picture of fallen mankind and his natural condition. Man, spiritually paralyzed, unable to do righteousness, certainly unable to move towards God, unable to get up and walk towards God. But then God intervenes by his saving grace. He raises us up with Christ. He gives life to our spiritually dead faculties. And then we begin to walk in God's ways. And then God does something else as he heals us. He puts a song of praise in our mouths. As Psalm 40 says, God raises us up out of the miry bog, he sets our feet upon a rock, he makes our steps secure, and then he puts a new song of praise in our mouths, praise to our God. And kids, this is the third point in your notes. Number three, Jesus heals us of our inability to praise God for his goodness and mercy. Jesus heals us of our inability to praise God for his goodness and mercy. This is one of the ways in which sin affects us. One of the ways that sin damages us as human beings is our inability to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We, we can't do that as long as sin rules our lives. Remember that you were made for that purpose. You were made to glorify God. You were made to find satisfaction in him. And until you're restored to that purpose, you will be a person without hope in the world. That's one of the profoundly damaging effects of sin upon us is to make us spiritually unable to give praise and thanks to God who has given us all things. To make us ungrateful, to make us suppress the the knowledge of God, to make us unable to taste and see the goodness of the Lord. It's natural for fallen man to hate God, to be embittered against God, to ignore God altogether. Try to ignore God. And that's what sin is. It's rebellion against God. The one who sins as a rebel against Almighty God must uh, fight against that knowledge. They must never give God any praise. They must never give him thanks for anything lest they acknowledge his existence. You'll find this in our culture in general, ingratitude, discontentment, frustration and bitterness, hopelessness, no sense of real thanksgiving for anything. It was a few years ago, I read an opinion piece in one of the major newspapers, and it was written by a secular author on the occasion of Thanksgiving Day. And he was trying to explain what we give thanks for and who we give thanks to. It was a very sad piece because he really didn't have much of an answer except to say we give thanks to all of us 
who got us these good things that we got through in this random chaotic world. He didn't, of course, use that exact language, but that was in essence what he was saying. We, I give thanks to myself and my friends, I guess, but that's about it. It doesn't go beyond that for people that do not have God within their conception and in their worldview. In that worldview, you praise yourself for what you've done. You've fought against a random, meaningless universe, and you've eked something uh, enjoyable out of it. Congratulations to yourself. This is what Jesus heals us from. It is a miracle of redemption to heal us of our spiritual paralysis, to heal us of our natural self-love, to heal us of our inability to praise God. And then suddenly we can do what this man did. We can walk, we can leap, and we can praise God for what he has done for us. And it was this healing of this once paralyzed man that became an occasion to preach the redemption of Christ And you know what happened in Acts 3 and 4 after that message was preached? Another 5,000 people believed the gospel and came to Christ. We had 3,000 in Acts 2. We have 5,000 in Acts 3 and 4. It's just getting better and better in terms of this amazing work of redemption. And that is, I think, what the Lord Jesus intended in this man's life. Yes, it was a great gift to be able to walk and to leap. And it continued to be a great gift for as long as he lived. But beyond all that, it became an occasion to set forth the truth of the gospel and to see sinners saved. That was the, the outworking and the, the purpose of the miracle. And so, brothers and sisters, I'm here to remind each of us that there is redemption in the name of Jesus Christ. There is a powerful redemption in his name. And it is his name that you must call upon to be saved. It is in his name only that you find healing and deliverance. Our Savior has come to mend that which is broken, and he has come to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. And so let us give praise to him for what he has done. We can think of all the things he's done in history. We can think of what he's done in this passage, but may it be that we also praise him for what he has done in our lives as well. Let's close in prayer together. Almighty God, we praise you for your great works of redemption, your great works of healing. We, we see this healing miracle as a picture for us of what you do in our lives, and we thank you for it. Uh, we thank you that you have uh, given us this knowledge of the truth that we can now respond in belief and in praise and thanksgiving. And I pray that our response to your redemption would be, as this man was, that we would have such a joy and excitement knowing that you have, have saved us, uh, that it would come as the natural overflow of our hearts to declare these things to one another and to a watching world. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.